Hello and welcome to Chinchilla Chat, where it's all chinchillas all the time. I am Sam Livingston Gray, and here with me is my fellow chinchilla, Jessica Kerr. <laughs> I'm not going to correct you. Instead, I'm just going to say how happy I am to be here today with Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica. I, I will remind you, Sam, that it is greater than code. Just to throw that out there. And I'm here with my great friend, Ryan Hendricks. Thank you, Astrid. It is my great pleasure to introduce Coraline and Keith. Hey, everybody. So for our longtime listeners, you may be comfortable and used to a weekly show. And we really want to be able to do weekly shows. But unfortunately, with the level of support we're getting from Patreon right now, that's no longer possible. So we're announcing that we're moving to a bi-weekly format. There are a lot of things we could do with extra funds, and this can come from individual patrons as well as corporate sponsorships. Beyond um, sustaining a weekly show, we'd like to focus on listener perks and swag that we'll send out to people in our Slack community who go above and beyond and are themselves greater than code. We've also talked about doing conference appearances, which, of course, brings travel costs into the picture. So if you are not yet supporting us on Patreon, I encourage you to do so at patreon.com slash greater than code. And if you want to sustain the conversations, um, we also encourage you to talk to your employer about possibly sponsoring the show. And we have information at greater than code.com slash sponsors. Also, can we say that like it's really exciting that we do have enough Patreon supporters to fully finance two episodes a month of this fantastic editing and transcription and website and social media, et cetera. Yay. That's really wonderful. Actually, it's one of the things that we really were hoping for when we started this show was to be able to continue to employ Mandy in doing the work that she does so well. And uh, I'm really glad that we can do that at least twice a month. I'm also here with Janelle Klein. There's a lot of people on this call today. (laughs) And I'm introducing Matt Stein, who I'm really excited to have here today. So I met Matt a few years ago, really just being a participant in uh, No Fluff, Just Stuff tour. And he's always been one of my favorite speakers just because he's so anchored in pragmatism, but so knowledgeable from software architecture standpoint and just being able to see so much scope and problems and patterns across the industry. You know, he's been one of the most fascinating people to listen to and talk to. So I'm super excited to have Matt Stein with us here today. So welcome, Matt. Very excited to be here. I love podcasts composed entirely of chinchillas, so I'm really excited to see what happens. (laughs) You, Jessica, making more chinchilla noises. So I got a question for you, Matt, (laughs) as soon as we can, you know, calm the chinchillas down here. But I was just wondering, how did you originally get into software development? Like, where did all your excitement about this come from? How did I originally get into software development? It depends on which starting point we come from. So if we start with, say, I was, what, seven years old? I don't know. My dad woke me up and brought me into the dining room, and there was this Atari 800 connected to a TV sitting on the table. And he said, hey, I got a computer. I'm like, cool, what's a computer? You mean like the thing on Star Trek? Like, well, not quite, but he showed me some stuff. And then we're like typing commands. Like, what is this thing we're typing stuff into? He says, it's basic. I'm like, okay, well, what does basic do? He threw a bunch of family computing magazines in my lap and said, there's programs in the back of that. Type them in and see what they do. And that's where it really started. But, you know, it was mostly this kind of informal, 
romance back and forth with computers and games and gaming and didn't really do a whole lot of software development, although I did poke around a little bit. And then um, it came time to go to college and I had to pick a major. And I said, well, I kind of do stuff with computers. That seems fine. Let's do computer science. (laughs) And then I found out what computer science was, which was a really uh, jarring experience. But I honestly don't think I learned a whole lot about software development in studying computer science. I learned algorithms. I learned all sorts of interesting things about data structures. And of course, all of those things are pieces and related to what we do. But we had this class called software engineering. And, you know, every class every year gets a theoretically real customer, usually somebody from the community around the university that needs some software built. And we're supposed to learn software engineering by building this software for this customer, which sounds great until you realize that nobody's ever actually taught you how to do that. (laughs) And um, we had the dubious distinction of being the first class ever that this professor had that actually did not deliver the software. So my first software project was a failure. Wow. Um, (laughs) So you learned the most. (laughs) I learned to fail from day one. And, um, you know, got out into the real world and actually learned software development and really from a bunch of people who'd come from other places but came to this little nonprofit that did not have any kind of discipline whatsoever. And we kind of invented everything that we did as we went along, which was both really good for me because I got to explore a lot of interesting ideas and do different things, but really bad for me when I went to my first job that actually had legacy structure in place. And I said, oh, we need to do this. They're like, no, you don't get to do that here. I'm like, what do you mean you don't get, we don't do it that way here. We do this. I'm like, well, that's stupid. And <laughs> and uh, we kind of uh, grew and, and, and learned from there. So now I'm like, I don't know what, uh, seven-ish years on the other side of that jarring transition from we're making it all up as we're going along to uh, going to uh, help really large companies that are figuring out that the big process and things that they've created is not helping them succeed and figuring out how to actually get them closer to really a lot of the really experimental weird stuff that we were making up as we went along back in the earlier part of my career. So it's this weird kind of full circle feedback loop. And I don't even know how I got to this part of the story, but you know, we're here now. So Matt, I have a question. Uh, You talked about how when you pick computer science for your major, that it was really jarring, kind of slap in the face and not exactly what you were planning and that your first software engineering experience wasn't that great. So what motivated you to keep going? Um, I was going to run out of scholarship money if I didn't graduate. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to uh, keep going. And people kept telling me that I was going to make a lot of money, you know, and I had no money. So making a lot of money versus no money sounded pretty good. Um, and this was maybe a year before the dot-com boom exploded. And so the fact that you could theoretically walk out of school with a computer science degree and make, you know, serious cash and actually be able to, you know, not eat ramen noodles and stuff like that, that was real. And uh, so, yeah, I thought, you know, some of this sucks. But, you know, I wasn't really acquainted with the idea that work could actually be separated from toil because I'd watched, you know, I'd watched my father toil for my whole life. You know, work was something that he hated. And I thought that that's kind of what work was like. 
the thing that you did to make money so that you could do the stuff that you really wanted to do. I've since obviously learned that there's so much more to it than that. But, you know, I just thought that, you know, things were hard and you needed to continue going. So the fact that it was maybe not what I expected or maybe not the most fun, I thought, well, maybe this is just how things are. And it took me a while to kind of break out of that mold of people would say, well, this is the way this is, or this is the way we do this. And to say, you know what, there's a lot of structure and assumptions that you've built up there. What if things weren't that way? And people kind of look at you, you know, what do you mean? What if things weren't that way? This is what I do all the time now is just kind of try to find the underlying structural assumption that people have about the way something should be and say, okay, let's set aside all the challenges that we think we have. Let's challenge that and, and see what happens. You must be a consultant because people <laughs> yeah. don't usually like that from people who actually work with them. <laughs> people don't like a lot of the things that I do. I don't because... like the fact that you dinged ramen. I, I love ramen. <laughs> we don't, we okay, don't okay, talk okay, shit so... about ramen on this show. I like ramen. I just don't <laughs> like the stuff that I buy for 25 cents in the pack at the grocery store. Like, so I just love ramen. Those little it's MSG flavor packets are so good. If that's your thing, that's great. It's it's not so much. Now, we did used to make this stuff that we called uh, Oh Shit Ramen um, in high school, which was ramen noodles plus like 18,000 spices. And the whole goal was to see how fast you could make somebody sweat. Um, so that was entertaining. And and that was a great use of those packets. But, um, you know, I do like, um, you know, the uh, the fancy ramen that I can get down the street from the office. That stuff's really good. So um, how long did it take you between your first job to becoming a consultant? Yeah, I worked my first job for 11 and a half years. I worked the my the nonprofit or the enterprise yes, one? The nonprofit. Oh, wow. The nonprofit, uh, the, the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital that, that, that's in, uh, uh, the bio on my website. 11 and a half years. Then my next job, I worked nine months. <laughs> Sounds more industry appropriate. And that was partly because I, I have a um, decent amount of need on a daily basis to have really good medical insurance for various family things that we have. And this company's medical insurance was almost as bad as not having any at all. <laughs> um, I was paying ridiculous amounts of money for just almost nothing. And I needed to find something else. You know, VMware happened to call me and uh, say, hey, we're looking to hire people who know Spring to go do consulting stuff. And hey, in the meantime, we're going to give you this much. And I said, oh, let me do the math. That's 37 percent more than I make right now. Yes, please. And I became a consultant. <laughs> it's interesting to me because you seem like one of those people that would generally have a hard time fitting inside of a box because you're always challenging the status quo with like everything like you you fit well into that consultant thing where your job is to challenge everything i mean it seems like you would gravitate toward that even you know outside of all these other kind of factors but maybe not i don't know what do you think it's weird like i saw consultants you know when i was when i was working that original job and you saw people show up in suits with briefcases and telling you all kinds of things in language that you didn't really understand. Like, you know, if you go back to the idea that we were this shop that started with like seven people and eventually grew to like 30 and we invented everything as we went along. And it usually wasn't based in, 
oh, somebody told us to do this best practice because this would work and this is why, to, um, hey, this thing hurts. Let's figure out a way to make it not hurt. Okay, we fixed that. Now this other thing hurts. Let's figure out a way to make it not hurt. And so we kind of experimentally discovered the process that we had, and it didn't look like anything that anybody else did. And so then, you know, as we got bigger, people said, you know, maybe we should figure out how other people do things because we're getting big enough that we need to start acting like the big companies. Okay, fine. So we brought in consultants. They said, oh, you're doing everything wrong. You should do this. And then we started trying to do that and everything got worse. <laughs> and so my initial you know, exposure to that was really negative. And I kind of stiff armed, you know, keep that away for a long period of time until it became the next obvious thing to do in my career that would help me, again, make the money that I needed to support my family. And that nine month job was the most important thing that I did to succeed as a consultant um, of anything I did leading up to that point. Because if I had only ever worked one place and I had never actually seen what went on outside of that kind of artificial world that we had created for ourselves and saw, oh, this is how the big companies do it. I would have been a really bad consultant because I would have been like oil and water as soon as I walked into another customer and basically said, oh, you're doing everything wrong. Like, no, we're not doing everything wrong. And we would have never actually been able to communicate. So I kind of had some empathy for the people that I was now starting to work with as a consultant because I had experienced the other side of that. I had to evolve into the ability to do this work. Like it's one thing to just challenge everything. It's another thing to challenge in a way that people are receptive to that. And and that's the thing that I've had to learn through doing over the last, I don't know, I guess, how long have I been doing the consulting kind of thing? Maybe five, five and a half years. That's it's really interesting, interesting to me that the market for consulting is so inefficient that those consultants you describe haven't been pushed out of it. No, no, that implies that your objective in hiring a consultant <laughs> is to like do anything better. <laughs> no, seriously. So, so rather than Matt being seen was, to do something better. Yeah. Yeah. Or just have an answer. I, so the, those consultants were bringing answers, right? And you are bringing questions. Well, I mean, there's models of this, right? So, you know, my, my current view of what consulting feels like is very much kind of driven by the way we approach things at Pivotal. And so much of our practice is based in, you know, discovery and research and asking questions and trying to figure out what are the real problems that we're trying to solve. And most of the consultants that I experienced before that were walking in with, yeah, here's what you should do. I don't even know who you are. I don't know what your problems are. I don't know what's hurting you, but you should do this. And there's another type of consultant, which was the consultant I'm friends with, who I would very often hire when I was in management for a period of time to say, hey, this is what I've been telling people and they won't listen to me. But if you say it, they'll do it because you're a consultant. And this actually, as I found out, goes on all over our industry right now, which is you need to be able to appeal to some outside authority sometimes to get some kind of change that you want to actually take place. And so you just, you know, you basically coach the consultant who already agrees with you. But, you know, this is exactly what I've been trying to say. This is what I want to happen. They show up for a short term engagement, present this. And it's like, it's the same thing I've been saying for the last three years that nobody will listen to. And he doesn't go off script at all. And Sounds all of like a sudden, being a woman in tech. we're doing it. I'll be honest with you. When I was a consultant, one yeah. of the things I would do 
was survey the team, ask them what they think should be done, and then pick a thing that they suggested and suggest it. <laughs> and the reason for that wasn't so that I could take credit for their ideas. It's so that I could take the blame if it failed and because they'd listened to me because they're paying me a lot of money. Yep. Matt, you mentioned empathy a little while back. How important is empathy in the work that you do? I think empathy is almost the center, the foundation of everything that I do. Because again, learning the hard way that trying to push change on people that aren't at the same place that you are. So like I was having a conversation this morning about how in, in 2003, I went to an extreme programming conference and became infatuated with XP and then walked back into my organization and basically called a meeting of everybody and gave this manifesto and said, this is what we're going to go do. And people are like, yeah, that's funny. Like, you know, the, 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 the walk in with a big stick and swat everybody with an approach doesn't ever work, at least not in a positive way. I mean, you can make people do things if you coerce them enough. Right. But I wasn't exactly in a position to do that. But, you know, the more that I'm realizing that I have this place that I want to help people get to, but they're all starting from a different spot in their journey either as an individual, as a team, as an organization. And if I don't try to look at it from their perspective and stand in their shoes and understand the constraints that they feel like they have, the pressures that they feel like they have, it's very difficult for me to communicate with that group. So uh, just, you know, trying to be them mentally, even emotionally, because I walk into emotionally charged situations all the time. I'm, I'm one that happened um, a month or so ago at a large bank actually um, is still very vivid in my mind of, you know, kind of two competing groups in the organization that have very different agendas that came to this meeting that had an agenda that was kind of separate from either one of their agendas. And immediately these two people who obviously have some power start co-opting the session and start trying to drive the agenda the direction they want it to go to the point where moments later, there's 10 of us just standing there watching these, these two people arguing with one another about something that has nothing to do with what we were there to talk about. And we're like, should we stop them? Should we enter? What, what, what should we do here? And we eventually just kind of waited until the heat kind of ran out in the room and said, OK, let's break for lunch. And then I walk back in and say, OK, we're going to come up with a structure for this meeting that prevents what just happened. Um, not to say that either of you were wrong, but the rest of us didn't really know what to do with ourselves. And we're not getting towards any of the goals that we said we were going to have on the agenda. So let's make a list of things that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> and if they come up, you agree that if I say you can't talk about that because that's on the list of things that we're not going to talk about, that you have to stop. And people were really like hesitant, like, should I agree to this? I don't really like this. OK, we'll do what Matt says. The rest of the day was much better. <laughs> In fact, most of the things that we said we weren't going to talk about actually never came up again. And we got a lot of things done. So sometimes you have to figure out, oh, there's some emotional like political power play thing going on here that. Maybe has nothing to do with what we're here, but it's infecting everything that we're doing. And we have to figure out how to diffuse that. But again, you know, if you kind of walk in with a fixed agenda and you can't be flexible and you can't relate to where everybody in the room is coming from, it's very hard to do that work. 
Actually, what's funny is that part of the thing that got my mind so much on this metaphor communication track recently was actually result uh, a, a result of that same meeting with that customer that I was talking about having to diffuse all the uh, crazy political driven emotions in the room. So it's it's, it's pretty easy to segue into that conversation um, because in in, in some ways, a lot of what I'm finding is a power struggle is people want to own the language because they feel like if they can own the language that's used across the organization, that they can control the conversation and drive it in the direction that they want it to go. If that makes any sense. It just uh, occurred to me that we're going to spend the next 30 minutes recapitulating Wittgenstein. Really? Talking about language games and things like that. I'm not familiar with that. So uh, Wittgenstein was a, a philosopher, probably the most influential philosopher of modern times. And one of his big concepts was that we all are playing a game with language and we each have our own language that we use. And sometimes they overlap with other people's and sometimes they don't. We each have our own goals that we're seeking when we play this game with with the language that we use and things like that. I've not heard that articulated that way, but it fits perfectly in with everything else that I'm thinking about right now. So um, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> That's cool. There's also the Safir-Whorf hypothesis that posits that the language that we use constrains our thinking. I think that what you're describing could be considered weaponized language, where if you're controlling the vocabulary of describing a problem, you're also constraining solutions to that problem to the space that you've established. Matt, can you give a concrete example of controlling language? Yeah. So, um, well, right now, the the one that is happening everywhere that I go is microservices, right? Every company that I've worked with is now writing their definition of what a microservice is. And How often do those definitions overlap? There's some weird Venn diagram that we could draw that has differing amounts of overlap that eventually would become impossible to decipher. Um, we'll, 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 we'll leave it at that. But the interesting thing, going back to the, you know, kind of the, the weaponized language um, idea is that you find competing tribes within the organization that have their definition that they've come up with and they want their definition to win. And usually it feels like it's based in, okay, I want to establish constraints around people that I don't necessarily have direct day-to-day control of so that I can control what they do um, because, hey, this is the organizational standard. And so therefore you have to do it this way. And so like I've, I've walked in to, again, that same, um, organization. I can think of maybe three or four different individuals who are, you know, various different architect type titles, leadership titles that say, you know, I want microservices to have this bullet point list of characteristics and you have to do what's on this list. Part of that shouting match um, that we talked about was about, you know, differing opinions about microservice should have this. No, it shouldn't have this. No, this should. Yes, it shouldn't. No, it, this is crazy. Like, what are you doing? And, this reminds uh, me a lot of Agile because I thought the point of microservices was that each one could have different characteristics. 
Yeah, that's not how the that's not how the uh, the the Fortune 100 conversation around microservices is going right now. Like it's everybody uh, is building a PowerPoint deck with here's what a microservice is and here's the characteristics that it must have. Um, now, what's really now bizarre and happening that kind of sucks is that that deck is now being broadcast to a huge organization of people who don't have any understanding of what they're being told to do. And they're just kind of naively going through and checking off the bullet points and saying, okay, our service does this, it does this, it does this, it does, okay, we've built a microservice. I have no freaking clue why they've built one, what they're supposed to be getting out of it, what what the value is. But they were told they're supposed to build microservices, and so therefore they built them. Um, another organization um, I'm giving a huge talk and there's a question and answer session. Somebody stands up and says, hey, we've got 50 microservices in our application and new ones are appearing every day. And this really hurts. Like, what should we do? And I said, you should probably build less microservices. Um, and people laughed and, you know, we kind of went back and forth a little bit. Somebody comes up to me afterwards as the sponsor of this particular event and says, hey, let me tell you the backstory to that question that you got. Well, his organization has been incentivized by their manager to build as many microservices as they can so that he can basically demonstrate to the rest of the org how awesome their little sub org is at being on with the microservices initiative and all the stuff that they're doing. And here's all these metrics that we have to demonstrate that fact. Right. But wow. it's leading to people who are actually living that life to experience ridiculous amounts of pain. And they don't. And, and this is where, you know, Janelle and I have been talking about lemmings a lot lately. And I'm like, we, we have all these lemmings and they're marching off the cliff doodly because they know that's what they're supposed to do. But they, you know, they kind of fall to their death and, and, and they don't know why. But that's because that's what lemmings do. Right. And we're in many ways without Maybe we're, maybe we're doing it consciously and I just don't know it, but I, it feels like it, I, I want to believe that it's unconsciously that we're creating these legions of lemmings um, in software development in these large organizations that are going and doing all this work. They don't know why they're doing it, but they're told that if they just do it, it's going to solve all their problems. And it ends up creating new problems. Big surprise to the group of people talking on this podcast, but very often the answer is, oh, well, you're just not doing it right. You know, you, you must not be microservicing correctly because microservices solve all your problems. And so let's try to microservice even more. <laughs> and so now I, this person who's kind of been a, I hesitate to say thought leader in this particular area, um, you know, people like pass around my little 50 page O'Reilly book like it's, you know, the Bible or something and say, hey, you should do everything that's in here. And now I'm going around. So, you know, all that stuff I said about doing like all these microservices. I didn't mean this. Don't do what you're doing right now. This isn't what I said. Um, they're like, but you're the microservices guy. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm the let's build software and, and solve problems guy. And microservices is a tool in my belt. But no, don't stop. What you're doing is going to hurt. It's not going to end well. So, so your book isn't just one page that says microservices. Yes, more of those, please. <laughs> I think that's what people have translated it to. Um, <laughs> it's nice. interesting to me. We could probably have a whole conversation on the choice of 
count of microservices as a proxy for successful implementation of the microservices, whatever. That's it's the it's, new it's line like the line of code measurement. metric. Yes, yes Jessica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me though, too, because there's there's a whole control dynamic here going on with internal fiefdoms competing against one another and then trying to come up with some metrics that give them control to influence another organization and then using language tactics and things like this to own vocabulary. I mean, there's there's a whole entire empire building thing going on. And one of the things I've seen happening on the engineering floor is it's so difficult and takes so much energy to fight the uh, momentum at that kind of organizational empire level that people just sort of decided not to care because it's easier. You know, it's like at some point it's like, well, whatever, you're paying me. If we're all going to walk off the cliff, it's fine by me. I just, and, and like genuinely choosing not to care anymore as a coping strategy. So if we can, I'd like to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, Matt, about how there's these different competing definitions of microservices and, and, uh, architects are putting together PowerPoint slides and saying, these are the characteristics that your microservice must have in order to be considered a microservice. I'm as cynical about corporate power structures as the next person. But I really want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I wonder how much of that comes from the architect's previous painful experiences of like, I tried this and it sucked. And I'm trying to save you from that by just telling you the answer, despite that strategy perhaps not being the most successful one for actually getting people to do what what they should be doing. What do you think about that? So I think that most of the time these efforts come out of a place of good intentions, like what you kind of just described, like I've, I've been down road X, I have the scars to prove it. And I want to help you not feel that same pain. And that part's good. But, you know, to kind of I don't I'll probably butcher the uh, the the cliche, but that's fine of, you know, where you can't solve the problems um, that you have with the techniques that got you here you know, the various forms of that thing being said, but it's like, okay, this thing hurts. I don't want people to repeat that. So I'm going to tell people how not to hurt themselves by following the exact same process that I followed to hurt myself in the first place. Right. And so, you know, one of the biggest examples I had of this is another, I only deal with large organizations right now um, because that's who we try to sell to. So they uh, they sent me this 150 page Word document that described their microservices strategy for the organization. And and I read it as as, as painful as it was to read it. I read it and um, it was a mishmash of, you know, cargo culted paragraphs from blog posts from Martin Fowler and other people that have authority. Eric Evans was in there, all kinds of things. And then it kind of described this reference architecture that as I talked to people in the organization, I found out what they basically did was they took the thing they already had and rename all of the things to match the terms that are floating around in the industry right now and change the technical stack to be, you know, um, basically, you know, our, our spring cloud foundry stuff with some other things thrown in there. And I said, so basically what you've done is you've created what you already had with new toys and you went to great lengths and pain to do it. And I said, the whole 
point in my mind of going down this road is to free you from the very constraints that you're actually trying to reimpose upon yourselves. And I'm like, yeah, but we have to have these constraints. I'm like, okay, well, let's look at that from two different directions. One, we can challenge whether you have to have those constraints or not, but that's a hard conversation. We don't have to have that one, that one right now. Let's have an easier conversation. Um, you have to have these constraints. Why do you need to change anything then? Because you're actually making it harder for you to enforce these constraints with this new set of disciplines and techniques and, t- and, and technologies than what you already had. Because the things that you already have are actually designed to enforce those constraints. And you're now trying to take something that's designed to free you from those constraints and use it to enforce these constraints. And they're like, wow, we've never really looked at it that way before. And um, you're using tools that don't have those constraints. Right. Uh, and so it's like, in. okay, how do I do control X with microservices technology? And I'm like, well, you don't. Like, what do you mean? How do you not do control X? You have to do control X. I'm like, well, what is the goal of control X? Well, it's to prevent these other things. It's like, well, we'll prevent that thing from this other. Oh, let's not even talk about transactions. Like, <laughs> I, I just don't want to go there. That's just such a bad, bad place. Um, but everybody's going there. So we should probably go there too. <laughs> that is one of the constraints that people are used to from a relational database like Oracle. But when you go to microservices, you don't get that. And yeah. And that's probably actually okay in a huge percentage of circumstances. But because we made transactions so easy, we made everything transactional. And so now it's hard for us to even conceive of a world that has things that aren't transactional. So when I ask to say, think about the process as separated from the software. Is that process inherently transactional by meaning acid transactions? Like, is it truly atomic? Um, which is usually, we don't have to go beyond atomic usually, but you know, is it truly atomic? It's like, no, actually this thing happens one day and this other thing happens another day in the real world. I'm like, then why are you trying to make software do anything but that? And I'm not even trying to tell you to have it span a day. I'm trying to tell you have it span seconds. And you're you're resisting seconds, but the actual thing that happens in the real world is taking multiple hours. And we get tongue-tied because we're kind of walking into a set of fundamental assumptions and we're we're saying, you know what, poke that one and, and, and kick that one out and now reformulate the world. And all of a sudden, not only is it more freeing, but it's also more scary because we haven't been there before. And this constraint, while it's limiting is also feels like protection. Like it's comfortable. Yeah. So going back to the original, you know, I want to define the language kind of conversation. It's because we're trying to find, we're trying to find a structure, right? And so, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, Janelle threw this book at me, metaphors we live by, and I'm kind of digging through this bit about structural kind of isomorphisms between different things. So like the one that they've been beating on now for a while is argument is war. And, you know, it kind of points out all the language that we use when we're talking about arguments. That's all based in talking about war. Um, And so they kind of extrapolate on that a little bit. And so I started kind of thinking about how does that play out in conversations that I'm having? 
And the thing that I kind of stick with is like, well, people come with the structure that they want, and then they try to create um, a mapping from kind of the popular conversational metaphors to the structure that they want. Like, why do I care so much about owning microservices and bounded context and all these things as terms? Because if I can own those terms, I can map the structure that I want, and then I can appeal to outside authority at the same time. So I can get power from the words, but then use the power inherent in the words to actually get this other thing that I want. So what you're saying, Matt, sounds like something that I heard recently was about interviewing. It was not about technology at all. And it was one person was talking about like when you go to interview somebody, you have like a way that you try to make them feel so that you can get what you want out of the interview. And his version of it was trying to make people feel at home. So he would try to like be welcoming and, you know, eat whatever they gave him or drink whatever they gave him. And he was saying there's another interviewer, I think it was Jorge Ramos, whose interview style is war because he is used to, you know, being a person who learned journalism in Mexico where the press was kind of marginalized and suppressed. He's used to having to poke at the bear to kind of get the answers that he wants. And so his interview style is much more aggressive. And maybe it's related to what you're saying, because if you're in an organization where in your position, you have to kind of be aggressive, then when you're talking with your own staff, you're going to be like that, whether you realize it or not, and be less open to their suggestions, as opposed to somebody who might be much more like collaborative in trying to gather all the information you're not going to notice that you're not talking the same language. Yeah. And so the extension to that, and I think that's right on, is that I, as an observer, without that context of why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving, sees that person being aggressive or sees that person being welcoming and saying, okay, that person behaves this way and that person is successful there. So therefore, if I behave that way, then I will also be successful. And I divorce the practice from the context, right? So that same aggressive behavior that works in that context, taken into a context where aggressive behavior is viewed as pathological, is going to blow up in your face, right? Now, that's an obvious example. But the less obvious example is, okay, if I do what Netflix did with their software, I will be successful in software, but we're forgetting the very important point that I am not Netflix. Um, My problem is not their problem. <laughs> exactly. So, and I'm not to say that there are not other organizations that could use the exact same set of practices and techniques and be successful. It just means that not necessarily you could be you, but may not be you. And so it's probably better to figure out where we are and try to get to where we need to go. So kind of as a follow up to my previous question about people who have come up with their own language around defining the constraints that they want to impose on everybody else. I'm wondering how you can facilitate a conversation between people who have different words and uh, different idioms that they're using to try to impose these things. And if you can get those people to come to some sort of common agreement and how do you do that? Yeah. So um, I probably haven't done that exactly the way you posed the question, and, and that would actually be interesting. So um, you, you've got a couple different scenarios, like you've got two people showing up with different words for the same thing. I usually have maybe the inverse of that, which is people are using the same word to mean different things, right? 
that never happens in software, (laughs) right? It's everywhere. And so one of the things that I'm using, I think more as a trick than it is a technique right now is to double down on the fact that everybody seems to be newly obsessed with um, Eric Evans and domain driven design. And so I start talking about ubiquitous language and I start saying, you know, that, hey, you're using a word to mean this and you're using a word, the same word to mean something different. And that's leading you to frustration. Well, Eric Evans talked about this problem, you know, and I kind of expound on the whole idea of ubiquitous language in a nutshell being that when we use the same words, we mean the same things. Sometimes I'll even go off into talking about and that's what a bounded context is, is a domain model that has a ubiquitous language. But um, depends on you know how excited that particular group is about that term or not. And so one of the things that I try to drive them to is, OK, because most of the time it's a language that they picked out of the industry conversation. So, you know, we talked about microservice. I've mentioned bounded context as another term. There's a lots of these that are floating around right now. And, you know, so they'll grab one of those terms that people are saying is, you know, this is a good thing. This is something that you should strive for. And they'll and they'll define it to mean kind of what they want it to be. And I'll say, you know what, that thing that you want, that's valuable. That's a good thing. And this thing that this other thing that that you want that's different is also valuable and a good thing. Let's name those things. Um, you don't get to use microservice as the word for that thing. You need to call it something else. And um, I kind of, you know, go back and forth with them a little bit about, you know, if you find things that are valuable, you should make up a language that makes sense to you so that other people in the organization, when they encounter these terms, they're not confused because I read this book that said that word meant this, or I read this blog post that said this word meant something else. You've defined, you know, kind of within your organizational lexicon that this term means this thing that you value as an organization. And that kind of helps diffuse things a little bit because it's like, oh, cool, we get to invent new words. That sounds like fun. Um, so that, 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 that helps a little bit. It helps people to feel like the ideas that they're bringing to the conversation are in fact valuable ideas instead of being told you're wrong. That's not what a microservice is because I've, I've tried that strategy and that strategy doesn't work very well. So, so they feel like, oh, my thing is good. Um, my thing just needs a name and the name that I'm using is confusing because it's defined elsewhere. And I understand that and that feels right. And so then we start to get into a useful kind of language defining conversation that feels a little bit like modeling and who doesn't like modeling a problem space and, and, and giving names to things. And then I say, you know what? We're creating a ubiquitous language right now. Um, at least amongst the group in this room. And then now we can kind of use that to expand and educate other people in the organization instead of confusing them by redefining all these words that they're either already using or they're encountering in a conference talk or a magazine article or something else. There's a, a recent Douglas Hofstetter book that talks about metaphors and similes as the fuel and fire of thinking. And one of the things that's pointed out in the book is the slipperiness of metaphors. And I think we're particularly susceptible to this in software development because we are not really 
involved in neologism so much as repurposing existing metaphors. Um, we use smoke tests. We use um, server. We use client. We use composition. We use all these words that are borrowed from different disciplines. And I think it's only natural that as human beings, we conceive of these terms differently. We map the metaphors differently. So I think neologisms is a really interesting way to frame a solution to that problem. Neologism. Does that mean making up new words? Yes. Did you make that word up? No. I can vouch for having seen it before. (laughs) Yes. I invented that word. So, Matt, this idea that you're talking about of universal language, I just want to mention, is exactly uh, the concept of language games from Wittgenstein. It is building a shared group of concepts that you use to describe your shared activity in the real world. Yeah. And and so, you know, the interesting thing, you know, going back to that metaphors we live by book, you know, the the, the premise kind of of that book, and I'm only about a third of the way through it at this point, but I already feel like I've got probably a few months worth of things to think about just from reading that third of the book is that, you know, we kind of have these metaphors that are so ingrained in the culture that we use them without realizing that they're metaphors. You know, the, 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 the argument it is war one is one that's, you know, kind of easier to see, but like, uh, gosh, there was one that was really good. Um, Janelle, you should be able to jog my memory on this. Maybe, um, there was the whole structure in there about talking about things that aren't containers and calling them containers. Cause you would say that, you know, a person is in like, oh, for example, um, a person is in love. Okay. Well, if you're in something, you're inside of a container. And so the metaphor is actually that love is a container. And, and he talked about that a little bit. And I can't remember half the stuff they said it was really good stuff. But, um, you know, we, we walk around communicating in these metaphors all the time. And he kind of makes this statement that, you know, really, there is no such thing as non-metaphorical conversation. At least that's what I take away from it, is that you can actually walk everything back to a metaphor. And it feels like there's this, you know, concept that eventually you should get to things that are atomic. And um, there's a whole chapter in there that challenges the idea that there's actually anything that's atomic from an idea perspective, that you can always take something and break it down yeah. um, even further. Hofstetter talks about that as well. And he talks about, in a talk that I gave recently, which is called uh, Metaphors or Similes, Similes are Like Metaphors, I talk about how the standard scientific method is about seeking the atomic components, about solving small problems and composing solutions to small problems into a larger solution. And then we have think we have something like category theory, which says the small pieces don't matter. Let's look at things from an even higher perspective and find the similarities that way and compose a problem solution pair that is about shared characteristics rather than differences. So we're talking about how to bridge two different people's sort of universes of language so they can share an understanding of something. And we're talking about metaphors and their relationship to some sort of truth, right? Metaphors don't accurately describe the thing. If they were perfectly described the thing, they wouldn't be metaphors, right? So metaphors are leaky analogies, or they're leaky abstractions. And uh, Wittgenstein has another concept called uh, Wittgenstein's ladder, which might be more familiar to some people as lies to children, which is where we attempt to bridge a differential in understanding between two people by 
saying something that is not true, but is more true than their current understanding. And if you do that enough, you eventually bridge that gap with the caveat that you then have to throw away the bridge that you've built because it's no longer helpful because it's a lie. That's simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> right? Right? Correct. Don't, yes, don't get cut off in the middle of that process. Strong, strong agree. <laughs> if, if you give people a whole list of checkboxes for what is a microservice, for instance, some of those are like with those qualities of maybe, I don't know, resilience or uh, circuit breaking. Um, some of those are going to be within reach and useful now, but some of them are not. The one that I think is both the most misunderstood and also the most dangerous is this database per service concept. So, you know, there was this, there's this idea that I think is a very valid one that, you know, if you have a bounded context, you know, so you've got this domain model that has a, a boundary you've put around it that controls what comes in and what goes out so that you can protect the integrity of the language used within that circle. One of the things that we say is, well, you can't have a shared database across multiple bounded contexts because then I can actually not go through your front door to engage with you. I can go through the back door and talk directly to your data and make it, you know, make it do the things that I want it to do or get the information that you say I can't have. And that's important and valuable. And there's it's a principle that I think is is interesting. What we've done is we've taken that and we have turned it into a bullet point on a slide that says microservices should have their own database or even worse, every microservice should have its own database. Notice the Where difference the, subtly the implication there is microservices should have a database, right? Oh, whether they need one or not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and so I, I walked into an architectures conversation they're showing me and it's like every single microservice had a database i said why does this one have a database like because it's a microservice like yeah but why does that microservice have a database they're like because every microservice has to have a database that's what makes it a microservice and these were genuinely confused people they had been taught this and they were doing what they were told it's worse than cargo culting i don't i don't know what it is like Cargo culting, we adopt something, we don't know why we adopt it. In this world, we're doing something we were told to do, and we don't know why we were told to do it. But it's the rules, because it was in the slide deck that said, this is how you microservice, and we were told we have to microservice. So yeah, there are these things that we put on the list that are based in some truth. And because we want to simplify it, we want to get people closer to this thing that we want people to adopt in a way of building software, the simplification becomes actually adopted as the truth, which is the thing that I thought was so scary about what you said is we built this bridge and then it's appropriate to throw it away at some point. But not only do we not throw it away, we actually double down on it. <laughs> yeah, you you sort of engrave it like into the structure of, of your organization and say, you have to understand this bridge. This bridge is now part of our organization when in fact the bridge was only there to get everyone to a shared place of understanding and past that point is counterproductive. But the bridge was given to us by an authority. Yes. And that short circuits a lot of stuff in our brains. 
I mean, we can get really meta here. We can talk about how do you create knowledge in another person's brain, right? Uh, we've talked about through rote, just by telling them the thing, uh, and how that often isn't very effective because they don't really uh, internalize it. Uh, we can do it by building a bridge through metaphor and, and through analogy. We can, I think, just you were talking about earlier, sometimes it's important to let people fail because sometimes the best way to gain new knowledge is through experience. I feel like the other major theme here is that everything is this solution centric conversation and everyone gets caught up in this argument of what the solution is supposed to be. And everybody's forgetting about what problem it is we're trying to solve to begin with that, that at the end of the day, you know, getting back to the pain, getting back to the problem that we're trying to solve is the thing that I think, anchors everybody back to that same goal and purpose of why we're here to begin with. And it's just so easy to get lost in all the solutioning that we end up just forgetting that. I think that as technical people, we also have an obvious bias towards solutions and shiny new toys, which does not help us in any way in this conversation. I know. Let's replace our government with software. Let's all be technocrats. Software involves every single problem. Every constraint on a system is a scar from a previous experience. So there was an interesting conversation that we had on Twitter, I guess, two days ago. And it was a broken conversation for me because I started it as a flight was getting ready to to take off. And then I've continued it on in-flight Wi-Fi poorly. And then I started it again while I was trying to get out of the airport. This is how committed I was to this conversation. And I forget exactly what the trigger was, but we were talking about this transition from this thing that Simon Brown calls a modular monolith all the way over to uh, to microservices as an evolutionary thing and and why that's a good way to go. And um, Adrian Cockcroft pipes in and says, well, Netflix, we spent like X number of months or years, I can't remember what it was, um, struggling trying to build a modular monolith. monolith and we eventually ejected and went to microservices. And so I asked a question to follow up, say, okay, well, I bet you learned a lot through that struggle. Do you think You're you assuming would have it was been... a struggle? Yeah, well, he said right, it was a struggle. Said. Okay. You know, he said it was a struggle. He said, we struggled. Um, so I said, so you had a struggle there. I bet you learned a lot. Do you think that you would have been as successful had you not had the struggle? Had you just gone straight to microservices on day one, he responded, no, we developed an anti-architecture of painful things to stop doing was, I think, his exact quote. And that really resonated with me because the thing that I felt going through my mind in the earlier part of the conversation, maybe a couple of minutes ago, was um, you know, solutions versus what problem are we trying to solve? It feels kind of like an economic problem. In that, well, if we could just get the right solution on day one and and just implement it, that should be cheaper than struggling through the figuring out the problem stuff, right? Because that takes time and effort, and that that time is not free, right? But um, if you pick the solution on day one, assuming that it's going to be correct, it looks like oh, cheap. We didn't go through all that stuff, all that discovery process, all that figuring out the problem. We just have the solution. So we saved all that money. And then it blows up in our face later on in the project. And we end up paying for that 
um, and probably paying beyond what we would have originally paid had we just struggled through the original discovery process. Um, blow up. Yeah, that's why that? I like to say that monoliths are an important part of the evolutionary software system because creating a monolith, the system lets you define the domain and you have no idea what services you need until you felt the pain of having everything be tangled. Right. Exactly. And exactly. having been a monolith gives you the ability to move things around without crossing service boundaries that are significantly more expensive than module boundaries. Yeah, you don't even know where those service boundaries are when you're just setting out to solve the problem because you don't have that perspective yet. So Matt, you mentioned that it, you try to like put in the solution to all the problems that you're going to have at the beginning and then it blows up. How does it blow up? By blowing up, meaning that we we adopt a solution without going through this process of discovering and finding where the pain points um, actually are, um, where the boundaries ought to be. And so we get a completely different set of, you know, going back to the idea of accidental versus essential complexity, we get accidental pain versus essential pain, right? There's pain that's inherent in the problem that we're trying to solve. And we adopt a solution that doesn't address that pain. And so we now get different pain, um, which is the pain inflicted by the solution on the things that the problem didn't actually um, inflict upon us. Right. And so this is manifested in a lot of uh, clients that I've worked with where they set out and they figured out, oh, we're going to draw all these microservices on the whiteboard. And we know and these are good. And so we're going to go build that. And then six months into that project or a year into that project, I come back and I say, you know, show me the architecture. And it's not the same architecture. Um, usually they have less services than they had before. I say, well, what happened to this? Said, yeah, those services made life worse. And so we backed them back into monoliths, which, you know, I, I one of the very first things that I did before microservices was even a term that we flung around. I was working in the world of OSGI. And we have built this whole architecture based on different OSGI modules. And we did a very bad job of defining our modules. And OSGI made our life a living hell. So one weekend I said, screw it. I'm backing OSGI out and I'm recreating a single uh, code base. And the pain of the modularization that we needed was still there. But all the pain of the stuff that we had created artificially went away. So, you know, I, I'm well acquainted with the create a bunch of microservices and then back it back into a monolith. It's a painful, expensive process to go through. And so myself and a couple other folks have kind of theorized from different directions, you know, maybe we should defer the creation of the distributed system. I don't want to say things like till the last responsible moment because people abuse that in weird and crazy ways. But Defer it until something obviously hurts and then figure out, okay, is separating along a boundary at where this pain point is, is that going to potentially make the problem better? And do that one thing, do that one thing and, and limit the expense to attacking that one pain point, which should be a smaller experiment than we've got 25 microservices and we need to go back to 12 or we've got 12 and we got to go to 25. And then experiment, say, okay, is this better? If it is better, great. We've got a microservice and we're going to run with it. If it's not, it shouldn't be nearly as disastrous to bring it back in. In fact, we should just be able to, in theory, revert to 
that particular commit in the code base and, and move forward. But that seems to be a better approach. Now, what I haven't done is taken this approach out and run with it on multiple projects to see if the theory is correct or if it's just as busted as the other idea. But it, it feels like it would be better. So, Matt, I think you talked earlier about this as a, an evolutionary process. And Coraline, I know you said that, too. And I think that's such a, a useful um, metaphor for this that we should unpack it a bit. For one thing, and this allows me to get on one of my favorite horses, evolution is a process whereby progress is made by making choices that are in aggregate better than random chance. Uh, and it turns out that's actually all you need to make progress on some time scale. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of people look at this problem, I think, as a pathfinding problem where you say, there's the goal. Let's find a path to that goal. And the problem with that is that that implies we know what the goal is. Mm. Uh, where really it's a, it's a different kind of search problem where we don't know where the goal is and we won't know until we get there. And there's no way that you can just pick a random point in the space and say, let's go there because we think it's where we're supposed to be. So I, I think in thinking about this in terms of, of evolutionary search of this problem space is, is a really good metaphor. Yeah. So what I, uh, actually, uh, did, um, uh, my undergraduate thesis on and then published another paper on in grad school was, uh, uh, using genetic algorithms for optimizing search spaces. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the idea of, okay, I've got a haystack and there's a needle in there somewhere, but I don't even know what the needle looks like or if it's even really a needle, but I'm going to go look for it anyway and, um, just start throwing candidate solutions at the problem space and tweaking them in various ways using you know, again, <laughs> metaphors to, you know, biological processes to see if we can come up with better solutions. And now uh, Neil Ford and Rebecca Parsons are working on uh, a book on the same level from an architectural standpoint called Evolutionary Architecture. And they're not really they're not implementing genetic algorithms so much as they're borrowing the concept of a fitness function. And saying, okay, we're going to define a fitness function for, you know, the, the things that we find valuable in an architecture and then use that fitness function to evaluate our architecture at various stages of evolution. And either the architecture is getting better or the architecture is getting worse. And that will allow us to kind of drive the decisions that we make in different directions. It's always interesting to me how this is well explored in the software engineering domain than at the sort of process and organization level lags behind by decades. True. It seems to me that the costs of doing some sort of genetic algorithm are relatively well understood in software and you can do thousands of generations in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas if you tried to do, you know, a truly evolutionary process in an organization, you would run out of money long before you got anywhere. You know, it's interesting. There are there are cases where you can take this sort of aggregate approach to problem solving. If you need to solve a problem, you can buy 10 tools that you think might solve the problem, and then maybe one of them does. And maybe that's cheaper than having developed uh, a tool in-house. So there are, there are times where you can do it, but there are also other ways to do better than that sort of aggregate method. Um, one of the things that, uh, that that I see a lot is at the organizational level is our obsession with reuse. Um, of, you know, we want to make sure that we only develop one service of this type and that service is going to be the one that does that type of work for all time. 
which again kind of flies in the face of the whole microservices should actually be, uh, you know, easy to replace and, you know, you should be able to create new ones cheaply and throw things away. And so I kind of challenge that with notion is like, well, why are you trying to control that? Why not let multiple services that do the same type show up in the organization? And then whichever one actually ends up being used the most and delivers the most value, that one survives. And then the other ones are, you know, once a service is like, oh, no traffic has been routed to this service for three months. Uh, maybe we can turn that one off. And depending upon who I'm talking to, people are either fascinated or terrified um, by that idea because, you know, so much of governance is about controlling and preventing those types of things from happening. But it seems like an approach that, again, I haven't seen done at scale, but would be very interesting um, to see an organization say, you know what, we're going to stop that particular type of control and allow the service topology to actually evolve and use some function to evaluate which services survive and which ones do not and, and see where that goes. It seems like in order to accept that, you would first have to accept the idea that your first idea of what that first microservice in that category was you would have to give up the idea that that was the right choice. And people oh, are really invested in that, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, the the earlier incarnations of, you know, kind of when we were figuring out this agile thing of, you know, we, we, we write we, we rewrite a test and then we, we make the test pass and then we're supposed to refactor. Um, the refactoring thing tends to get set aside because, hey, I wrote that code and I labored over that code and I'm really proud of that code and I want to keep that code around. And, you know, we kind of promote that idea to larger and larger and larger structures of, you know, I, I saw um, sunk cost fallacy fly by in the chat a little bit earlier. We haven't learned that thing because, you know, we, we invest in an architecture that we know to be poor, but we've invested in it. And so therefore, uh, we need to keep it. Uh, the, the, the best crazy example of that that I remember is a project from four years ago where we were working with an organization that shall remain nameless as always. And they, um, were doing scrum and I'm doing air quotes right now for the folks that can't see me. And, um, they had done their sprint planning and, um, we had something that we were supposed to bring to the project and we were late, but we showed up like four days into this sprint and the sprint was going to be a month. And they said, okay, we've got the thing now. Can we start working on it? And I said, no, we've already done the sprint planning. You'll have to come back next month. And I said, but we have new information that invalidates this. Doesn't matter. We've done the sprint planning. So therefore you have to show up next month. It's comical and tragic at the same time, but there, there are so many examples of us doing exactly that, of we have created something, whether it's a plan or a piece of software or an architecture, and we know, we now have new data that tells us this is wrong. But the process says, or something else says, that we have to go on. It's irrational, but at the same time, it's so prevalent. I don't really know how to cut through that other than to say it's irrational and we need to cut through it. But yeah. The best summation of that pattern that I've heard so far is defining the waterfall process as, quote, a shared agreement not to learn anything for the duration of the project, end quote. <laughs> There's a, a mental model that I use that comes from uh, Karl Popper, the philosopher of science who is probably best known for 
this notion of falsifiability that was pretty popular a while ago. And his political philosophy, which you can take or leave, incorporates the idea that we, we focus a lot on making the right decision. We put a lot of time and effort into making the right decision, but it turns out that's not the only way to achieve progress. You can also achieve progress by recovering from bad decisions. And if you do that enough, you'll eventually, the right ones will stick. So if you have a culture that focuses on recovery from failure rather than sort of preemptive trying to make sure you never do anything wrong, that culture can be a lot less fragile. Going back to the whole metaphor thing, I think one of the foundational um, metaphors that drive a lot of this type of behavior is the manufacturing metaphor. And when we think about our software as we're building these little parts and then we're putting these little parts in a box and shipping them to customers, that that metaphor is so foundational to our thinking that, you know, this idea that we're going to kind of perfect things up front versus that, you know, evolutionary process you're talking about of being able to to adapt after the fact that we need to kind of move to a mindset of software is inherently a discovery process and that we're always going to get it wrong and we're always going to make mistakes. And the best way that we can make progress, as you're saying, and evolve toward whatever that goal is that we don't even know yet is to learn how to respond to the pain and observe the pain and, and, you know, figure out how to adapt from those things as early and quickly as possible. We probably start need to stop talking about iteration and start talking about evolution because iteration is not a metaphor and metaphors are more powerful than descriptive terms. <laughs> so we would love to continue this conversation, but we are running short on time. Uh, we unfortunately need to wrap up the show and get into reflections. Uh, so this is the part of the show where we talk about something that is maybe going to stick with us that we learned or that we maybe want other people to spend some time thinking about. So uh, Matt, we'll let you launch into that. So um, was it uh, Wittgenstein that we mentioned earlier? I was not familiar with that particular philosopher and the whole language games thing, but I have definitely um, added something additional to my reading list from the conversation because, um, again, going back to uh, the idea of, of metaphors and trying to create uh, isomorphisms, once I see something that shows up in more than one place, I want to go collect as many other examples of things like that as I can to figure out, am I actually seeing a pattern or am I not? And so now I'm fascinated by uh, a new potential uh, candidate for that list. So uh, I have homework to do. I'm going to be doing some thinking about the shortcomings of pattern matching. Um, we didn't specifically talk about pattern matching during the show, but I think it was a subtext where we see what we think a problem is, and pattern matching tells us what the solution is, regardless of whether it's actually appropriate or not. I actually really enjoyed the talk about the, using evolution as a model. Uh, one of the things I really like about that is that evolution occurs because of mistakes. And I think it's a good idea to remind ourselves that allowing for mistakes to happen uh, gives us the opportunity to see a new way that we can adapt what we're doing and actually utilize that to make ourselves better. Astrid, that actually reminds me of the thing I wanted to say before but forgot, which is that sometimes the best thing for an organization to do is to make it cheap and easy to fail rather mm -hmm. than to succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and my reflection would be I want to mention a book called The Beginning of Infinity that sort of expands on this Popperian idea of uh, how to make progress just by correcting mistakes uh, into a 
it's a little bit woo, a little bit philosophy, a little bit science. It's a pretty interesting book, and it, it definitely gave me a lot to think about. Well, the thing for me, I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of language as a mechanism of control and like constraining the vocabulary and space of meaning as a means of controlling the thought patterns and stuff of others. I'd never really thought about it that way, but it's amazing to kind of think about how a tribal argument is war can take place via language control. For me, the thing that uh, really caught my attention, I mean, there was so much, but uh, the idea of building a bridge of understanding with progressively less incorrect metaphors <laughs> is one that when I heard that, I thought immediately of the process of raising my daughter, who is now eight, almost nine. And that's something that I've definitely been going through. And I haven't really thought about it. But when she asks questions that I'm like, I get frustrated trying to think about how to answer them, I'm realizing that it's because there are several segments of that bridge. And I'm not sure I have time to build them all right now so that I can answer the question to her satisfaction. <laughs> so thank you for that, that uh, model. That's really useful. Thank you, Matt, for this great conversation today. I think it gave us a lot of stuff to think about, and especially now my head is very twisted with uh, metaphors and trying to understand how I'm talking and listening to other people. Uh, I think that um, hopefully we can have more conversations like this where we get to go on for a little bit longer than usual. But to all of our listeners out there, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in another couple weeks. 